internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be discussing Sony Pictures Animation's attempt at adapting the Spider-Man universe, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Peter Jackson's latest movie in conjunction with his uh, collaborators Fran Walsh and Philip Aboyan, the adaptation of Mortal Engines, Clint Eastwood's newest movie, The Mule, as well as a repackaged Deadpool 2. We'll get into it. So, let's get started. This was never your city. It's mine. If I don't destroy the collider, none of us will have a home to go home to. Remember, what makes you different? Let's go! Is what makes you Spider-Man. Officer, I love you. <laughs> Wait, what? That way, that way. Other way, other way, other way, other way. Do animals talk in this dimension? Because I don't want to freak them out. A bit behind the scenes here, I was actually getting really into uh, my review for Into the Spider-Verse when GarageBand completely crapped out of me, and I have no idea why. It's been doing that a lot lately, and in fact, we actually lost an entire episode of Living in the Stacks while we were recording because of my garage band. Um, at any rate, I'm doing this now for Audacity, because apparently Mac, Macintosh and Apple just can't get their garage band in order. I should look into investing for, for Adobe Premiere. Anyway. No. Premiere is the video. I mean, anyway. Point is, Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse is really good. I don't want to give too much away. I don't want to get too spoiler-heavy. But this is really the most ambitious Sony Pictures Animation has ever been. This is from the people who really, like, half-assed... They'll tie in their live-action properties into their animation studio because they're essentially being used in an effects house. That's how you get the Smurfs, Peter Rabbit, and, Go and Goosebumps being labeled as Sony Pictures Animated Movies, even though it's all just used for effects work, not actual, like, you know, fully animated stuff. And meanwhile, their best stuff was through Lord and Miller, uh, Collided with a Chance of Meatballs, although arguably their collaboration with Ardman in... Um, and uh, Arthur Christmas could be their best too, but thankfully this is the new high watermark. You've got the you got such creative use of animation and art styles. Like that's the thing. I call this a mixed media collage in animation form because it's got such a weird coalescing of various different art styles, from comic book inspired to anime manga inspired to. Uh, to uh to uh like noir you've got noir stuff cartoon animation styles all working together in this singular universe not to mention the fact that this is probably the best use for 3d in animation Oof, since what avatar or since like how to train your dragon like 10 years ago other like really how 3d has been kind of a needless addition to movies since its inception. And meanwhile, you've, you've finally got something like this to really showcase, oh yeah, we can have something that makes 3D useful. How about that? Uh, as far as the story goes, it's basically the um, origin of Miles Morales from the comics. Uh, Miles Morales was created by Brian Michael Bendis in answer to uh, Donald Glover's 
uh, Twitter campaign to place the Amazing Spider-Man in the Andrew Garfield uh, movies. So he decided, well, why don't, I, why don't I create a new Spider-Man who is black? And then uh, I want to make him also Puerto Rican as well. Uh, you know, black father, Puerto Rican mother. And that's how Miles Morales came into being uh, metatextually. But in the universe, he was, he was bitten by the same radioactive spider that Peter was, which garnered him similar but not the, but not the exact same power set. And so that Peter Parker helped to, helped to mentor him until his untimely death. And then Miles became the Ultimate Universe's de facto Spider-Man. And then recently in the comics, they have created the Spider-Verse, which is every iteration of Spider-Man throughout the multiverses. That's how you get things like Gwen Stacy's now Spider playing a Spider-inspired character, you know, is playing the Spider-Woman. Uh, you've got uh, various iterations of Peter Parker, a noir-inspired one. You've got an anime girl who drives a, a spider, a spider mech. You've got a spider ham who was actually created before the Simpsons joke, oddly enough. He is a product of the 80s, apparently. And he was, in fact, created when a pig woman bit a spider and turned it into a pig. And then she adopted it as it, as her as her nephew. Comics are weird, man. Um, but yeah, they've got all the different iterations of Spider-Man. And there was a recent um, event that had all the spider iterations of spider-man crossing together in order to save the multiverses and you get a taste of that here here's just the five i've li- here's just the main ones miles morales peter parker gwen stacy um spider-man noir spider and spider ham um all trying to prevent the collapsing of their universes through the actions of wilson fisk the kingpin um and so you've got you're, you're we're within the ultimates verse, but you never really get a chance. But you unless you knew comics, you would have you wouldn't have any idea about that other than the fact that oh the Spider-Man villains aren't exactly how I remember them. Like Green Goblin looks way different than the Green Goblin I'm thinking of, and yeah, it's because we're in the Ultimates universe, not the Six One Six universe. In fact, I think the Peter Parker that's played by Jake Johnson in this movie, I don't think even he's from the Six One Six universe. I think he's from an entirely different anyway. If you find your local comics nerd, have them explain everything. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, like I mentioned, the, the, the animation is stunning, beautiful. Ab- um, some of the most creative I've seen in animation in years. And then, of course, you've got the all the tributes to the various Spider-Man characters and the various, like, it's such a deep, is this what happens when comic book nerds know how to write a good story? Because sometimes you'll get something where it's like, references, 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 but they don't mean anything. Meanwhile, here's something where there are the references, but they're also, but they all play a part into the overarching story, so it doesn't feel like a complete, what, like, a complete, like, uh, hey, we know what you nerds are thinking. It's not like where Michael Bay will, like, introduce characters from the animated series, and it's like, from the old animated series, and it's like, hey, you nerds get that reference, right? But it has no, it has, unless, like, but it has no real passion or care behind it it's just you nerds will get that reference right here it's like the nerds are are the ones making the movie so it's like oh we should introduce this part and then here's oh what about this bit and then it's, and it all and then because they're all so creative they all know how to make it coalesce into such a great overarching story as well because it all plays out like a spider-man story oddly enough hey 
Here, how about the Spider-Man story play out like a Spider-Man story would in the comics? Uh, how about that? Yeah. So you've got Miles Morales coming into terms with what it means to be Spider-Man. And then all these other iterations of Spider-Man who have d- gone through the same thing, trying to help him out through it. And him c- deciding what it is to be Spider- what he wants to do with being Spider-Man. Um, and of course, you've got an amazing voice cast to back that up. Uh, Shameik Moore is amazing as Miles Morales. Uh, Jake Johnson plays um, the main version of Peter Parker that we see. You've got Haley Steinfeld in here, Marshala Ali, Brian Tyree Henry, Lily Tomlin, Zoe Kravitz, John Mulaney, Nicolas Cage is Spider-Man Noir, uh, Catherine Hahn, Liev Schreiber is Wilson Fisk, and then Chris Pine's even in here. And then you've got some cameos uh, for later on in the movie that I won't give away. Uh, apparently Post Malone's even in here for a, for a, for a random voice cameo. It's 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 a it's a stunning collection. Like everything about this is like we like that's the thing. You wouldn't think this would work on paper. There's no way this would work outside of the comics, and yet because the people making this movie know what they're doing, it it works perfectly outside of the comics. It works amazingly. This is arguably the best Spider-Man movie we've ever had. Like the pinnacle for a lot of fans is Spider-Man Two. I'd have to go through the whole lot of them again and see maybe for um. Far From Home, I'll do that. I'll go through every Spider-Man official movie. Not the old, not the ones that are like tied into the, the 60s series or the serials or anything like that. Like, starting from the, uh, I'll, start, I'll, I'll make it the Sony Spider-Man movies. I'll rank them. And, did I do, did I already do that? I don't remember doing that. But I know that, um... The pinnacles for a lot of people is the Raimi verse, the Raimi Spider-Man's up until three. Uh, I'd have to, uh, but I, I think for Far From Home, that's what I'll do, so that I can collect and see if if I if I can definitively say this one is the best Spider-Man because it's hard to say if it if it isn't or it, like I want to say oh this is the best Spider-Man, but unless I've gone back and revisited every Spider-Man movie from the Sony acquisition. I, I, t- I can't say for sure. I just know that this definitely feels like the best Spider-Man. So, if you haven't yet, please go see this. This, this is really, this is, de- if it's not one, of, if it's not the de-, de facto best Spider-Man movie, it's definitely the best thing Sony Pictures Animation has done with it. And, and honestly, probably the best that Sony has done with the property. If Sony had been doing stuff like this with Spider-Man, Instead of, like, Amazing Spider-Man and the weird Venom-verse that they're trying to set up, then I think more people would be would, would be hesitant to have them send Spider-Man back to Marvel and Disney because, oh, hey, Sony's actually doing something with it. So, yes, please go support this movie. It is amazing. It's spectacular. Yeah. Spider-Man puns. He's here. In the great game of survival, this is checkmate. I knew you wouldn't leave me. Shut up and run. You sure you want to do this? I have to. For my mother. You look at her, and all you see are the jagged edges. But she is something quite different. She is beautiful and strange. And very, very rare.
Next up, we've got Peter Jackson returning to theaters. Uh, sadly, it's not the one that's where he uh, re, uh, where he essentially refer not refurbished. Um, uh, what? Why can't I remember the term for it? But yeah, he basically um, kind of upgraded and 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 essentially saved so much archival footage from World War One, and actually made it feel like it was recorded today almost like unless except for like a few differences where you can tell he colorized the film this feels like it could have been recorded today because of the sound editing and whatnot but uh, we're not talking about that uh we're not talking about that one that one's apparently coming out oh crap that's coming out today i have to look into seeing that anyway uh we're talking about his him and philippa boyan and fran walsh best known for bringing the lord of the rings to life in their attempt to adapt another uh, a, a young adult novel. And they've done that before. They did The Lovely Bones, which I kind of liked. I don't know. I wouldn't say I loved it, but I liked what they were doing with it. And I liked their attempt at bringing that story to life. I feel like, once again, the book was better. But I also never finished the book, sadly. Um, at any rate, this one is a, is, a cle- is a strict young adult fantasy. Like, it follows pretty much all... Uh, maybe the bo- I don't know how much the book follows it. The movie is very clearly in trope territory. It doesn't really deviate too far from that, sadly. You've also, uh, the main focus seems to be the visual effects. That seems to be the main driving force into, into this production. Because all of the effects work is really good. Like, this, the creation of these mo- roving cities and this weird post-apocalyptic world. Yes, the visuals look amazing. It's too bad nothing else lived up to it. Yeah, um, I'm not a visuals kind of guy. I know v- movies are a visual medium, and I, once again, I, I, I commend visuals, when they, like in Spider-Verse, when they serve a purpose and when they don't outshine the main reason I go see movies for the stories. I like to see stories being told. I like to see characters. I like to see characters that are unique and interesting. Not even unique, but interesting and and worthy of following here you've got every young adult trope in the book you've got the you kind of got the katniss styled character who is the girl who's lived on the outs in the in the wasteland and has to survive had to survive for herself you've had the her love it her kind of foppish love interest essentially you've got the evil villain who is out there to you know take over the world for for even in his own way uh we hear played by hugo weaving who apparently is too good for the red skull but he'll be in this mm-hmm. anyway um then on top of that you've got the 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 whole like that's the thing i don't know if the book does this the movie is strictly like hey what if th- what if this movie but not as good uh it's got bits from like the terminator uh, the it, the second the third act is essentially the Battle of Yavin from Star Wars. It the first the fir, you know the setup the first act the setup is the most unique part because it's not something we haven't seen before, except for the characters who are character who aren't really characters. They have no personality outside of what the plot demands of them. The only one with a real personality is the main character Hester Shaw. And it's a main, and her personality is the generic, stoic sort of distant badass chick who's like, I don't, I don't, I don't feel love. I just out for revenge, and it's taking the being around the foppish 
male character to realize, oh no, I can feel love again. And it's... Everything about it is very by-the-numbers, sadly. And, of course, it doesn't help that the actors aren't very good. A lot of them, this is their first major motion picture outside of Hugo Weaving. And some some of them, this I think the girl playing Hester, this is her first English, maybe second. Um, point is, these actors just aren't very good. They, they These are the not-ready-for-prime-time players, for sure. And... Maybe if given if given better material, like I mentioned this on Twitter recently, that I used to hold it against Natalie Portman for her portrayals of Padme Amidala and Jane Foster. It wasn't until I started to gain a better understanding of the movie making process that no amount of acting could have saved those characters. Padme and and MCU's Jane Foster were woefully underwritten, and it's no wonder that. Natalie Portman would rather stick to dramas and um, independent film because that's where she gets to shine as an actress. If she's in blockbusters, she's not given much to do. And especially in those two where really unique and interesting characters are what could have been in the form of Padme, but one who has been established in the comics as a really compelling and interesting character has been mangled and ruined by people who have no idea how to write women. <laughs> and so it's no, so it's, that's, that's kind of the problem here. You've got three people who are very capable of adapting stories and making compelling characters just almost refuse to do it. Like why would these people who are clearly capable of writing compelling and interesting characters, not do that. Like the main villain is a mustache twirling villain, even like even to the point where his own daughter is like, "Oh, oh, you're the villain." Okay, like like even in front of his own daughter, the daughter's clearly like, "Huh, I think my dad's the villain." <laughs> oh, it's so bad. And even Hugo Weaving isn't giving in a good performance because he, I think even he understands that, oh, oh no, this is garbage. Okay, yeah, why even bother? Um, and then the only real performance I liked was from Stephen Lang, who didn't even appear on screen. It was a voice. It was the voice of the Terminator bot. <laughs> it really is uh, just the weirdest... Co I, I compare it to... 2006's Aragon, which came out in the wake of Harry Potter. And that was such a young adult, trope-tastic, hot mess that no amount of filmmaking could have, and visual effects could have saved terribly underwritten characters and story. That's the case here. Peter Jackson, in the after, creating, after filming the unfilmable novel in the case of Lord of the Rings, in the wake of doing The Hobbit, has decided... Well, story apparently doesn't really matter that much, so let's just do, let's just remake Aragon, but set it in post-apocalyptic steampunk future. Uh, this really is, the this is one of their worst, sadly, and they're, they're amazing filmmakers. So what happened? Why, why does it feel like they've given up? I don't know. At least, like, they haven't given up on visuals because the visuals are stunning, but the characters and the story are just... No, re there's no reason to see this movie. 
maybe the book is better. I hear the book is even better. But, yeah, everything about this movie feels just like nobody cared outside of the visuals. It felt felt like Peter Jackson wanted to make the city parts come to life, but decided, eh, make interesting characters, make unique story. Why do that? Who cares? I'm, I care more about my, my model cities that are on tr- that are on tank wheels. Let's do that part. Uh, oh well. So help me God, this is the last one. I joked on my Instagram about if old man Eastwood still got it. And yeah, when he even pushing 90, he's 89 years old and made one of the best movies of his career. Like I would say clearly top 10 Eastwood directed movies, if not top five. Um, The story here is inspired by a news article, I believe in the times or um, I forget where, but it was an article about the, uh, a 90-year-old uh, drug mule for the cartel. For, a, well, not the cartel. There are, alto- there are multiple, car- but one of, for a major drug cartel. And Eastwood takes that and tells a unique and compelling story. I keep saying unique as though it is unique, but it tells, point is it tells a compelling story about a man who has kind of put work before his, family for decades to the point where his family has essentially disowned him and it isn't until he loses that work that he has no idea what to do with himself so he tries to re-ingratiate himself with his family and it's a and the only one who is willing to accept him is his granddaughter who never felt the pains that his wife and and then daughter felt uh from his absence and meanwhile he's a charismatic guy he's like you know, he'll, he he kind of feels like a lesser version of the of the character from Gran Torino, where like he'll say he like he'll like he'll drop like Negro uh, while talking to a black family, but then when they're like, hey, please not say that, he's like, okay, okay, yeah. oh sorry, uh, and but and his main focus seems to be like, damn kids and your cell phones, why don't you get off your phones and live in the real world? And it's like, well. Our world is integrated into this thing. We're talking to our families. We're doing business. Like the, the, that's the kind of mentality that comes from somebody who has lived the entire their entire life without the need for this device. But the but society has progressed to the point where you need this device in order to function. Not to the point where you you know if you're if you know what to do. Like he he really sticks his foot in his mouth when he tries to talk to people outside of his comfort zone. At the same time, he's still charismatic enough to be like. That, you know, his he has no filter, as they mentioned in the movie, but at the same time, he has a good heart. Like, he wants to help people, even though he keeps putting his foot in his mouth. Like, he runs into um, a, 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 a biker gang of um, various uh, butch to, uh, up to more femme lesbians uh, on one of his uh, runs, and he's like, and he, think, and he confuses them for a man at first, and he's like, ah, 
But no, he keeps talking about the motorcycle because they're working on they're working on because he's got familiarity with that. So he kind of gains this familiarity and 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 has these niceties with these um, lesbian with this lesbian biker gang because they because they like talking about bikes, <laughs> and like he's able to make friends with everybody except his family, and he it's him coming to terms with the fact that I screwed up. I put everyone else before my family. Because I felt like somebody to them, and I never felt like somebody to my family. And it was him coming to the terms of the fact that I screwed up. That's not what you, that's not what you should do. And the oh, that's the main arc of the movie is that he wants to genuinely make amends for all the for all the times he was a terrible and distant father and and husband. And meanwhile, he's doing this by being a drug mule for a cartel. <laughs> And even, but even then, like he gets he gets recruited, and they say all you got to do is drive, and they're very cold and like threatening to him at first because they can't trust him. And then as soon as you know, like by the second run, he's like, "Hey, hey, Poppy, how's it going?" You know, like how yeah, he's like, "Hey, how's the kids?" It's like it's this this you know they're by working together they built this familiarity where they're like talking like there's a point where um where one of these higher ups from the from Mexico uh within the cartel comes in and wants once uh cuz apparently Clint Eastwood will take his time and won't deliver the drugs uh, drugs within like a within like this set amount of time but he does it so well and he never gets caught that the that the main uh uh leader played by Andy Garcia is like eh, we let him do what he does he's clearly good at it who cares if it's not who cares if it's not specifically on time and this and this main and then and then the, this, um, I have to look up, um, his name. Uh, I don't recognize the actor specifically. Um, his character's name is Julio. Ignacio Sericchio. Um, he's from Argentina. And he is known for, apparently, Bo- Robert- Rodolfo Fuentes and Bones. He's in the, he's Don West in the Lost in Space for Netflix. And then he was in The Wedding Ringer? And he was on The Young and the Restless. Okay. And then recently he's been doing uh, El Recluso, uh, Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, and, yeah, Bones, Zoe Ever After, which is of East End he was on. Uh, so I, he's more t- he's been more in, in more TV, but here he's like this tough, no-nonsense guy until, once again, he starts to learn more about Clint Eastwood and they start to form a somewhat relationship reluctantly because while, you know, Eastwood is just this affable, charismatic guy that this tough, no-nonsense cartel uh, higher-up, it's just like, man, I can't be mad at you. You're just, you know, you're just so darn likable. Uh... And then it, and then as things go on, uh, you also follow the DEA um, with Lawrence Fishburne, Michael Pena, and Bradley Cooper, kind of honing in on this particular cartel's movements. And as the as they continue to get closer and closer, uh, the you know the cartel starts to get less lenient with. Um, with Clint Eastwood to the point where him taking a deviation to finally stand up and take care of his family gets him in trouble with them and eventually leads him to the climax of the movie. And I got to, and I, it's really, 
it it it's just such a really well executed fi- like final like if this was his final movie like if he said i'm retiring from movies now this was the last one i really wanted to do and he and he like focused solely on just living out the rest of his time either doing his stuff in private or maybe producing like I, that would be fine um Sinaiola is the cartel in question uh was from New York Times magazine uh I thought it was a paper maybe I don't know um at any rate uh you this really is one of his like last great movies like before this I'm trying to think what his other movies before like I remember Jersey Boys which was really what's was a really bad attempt at trying to adapt the music cuz Clint Eastwood should stay away from musicals. He's not good at it. Uh, he he wasn't good in Paint Your Wagon as a star, and he wasn't very good in trying to bring um, it to life with Jersey Boys. Uh, Fifteen Seventeen to Paris. Um, it says twenty eighteen, but that can't be right. That must have been last year. Uh, no, that, was, that came out this year. Hold on a second. Let me go back through my notes. I don't remember that. That movie is past my mind entirely. Um, what what day in February? The 9th. So that would have been my lead up to... Uh, to Valentine's Day. I think I... But I, I don't think I did a... Alright, those would have been um, the 90s. In, the, in Around the time... Uh, yeah, January, 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 January. Uh, I think I may have been my 100th or 101st episode, so. Sorry, this is, now this is bugging me. Uh, like, I, 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 I don't remember seeing this movie at all this year. <laughs> That's how far back it was. Like, some movies I do remember seeing, let's see, 107. Was Ready Player One that was in March, one of six. Ah, shoot, my notes don't go back. Don't don't go that far back. Oh boy. Ah well. Um. Yeah. Uh. Par- so apparently he did have another movie out this year that I completely forgot that I completely thought came out the year before. Oof. Uh. Yeah. That shows how much fifteen seventeen to Paris stayed in my memory. Sully wasn't very good. Uh, I mean, it was fine, but, but like, it wasn't compelled, but it definitely felt like a Hollywoodization of the story. American Sniper, I didn't see. J. Edgar, heard bad things about Hereafter. Like, I think the last really great movie before this was Gran Torino. And once again, same, it's a similar story. It's this coming of, it's this, you know, man in the twilight of his years trying to instill what last bits of wisdom he has in the generation ahead of him. And... You feel like this is a nice sort of conjunction to Gran Torino. Yet people don't seem to be into it. Like Metacritic had it like a, a 58 out of 100, which is really weird. Uh, yeah, I still think this is one of his better movies. I feel like this is, like if this was his final movie, this would have been the one to go out on more so than 1517 to Paris, which is more so a, you know, red-blooded sort of, like the fact that he hired the actual men involved instead of actors it was a stunt it was that movie was just a stunt and a, and a way to be like these are what real heroes are like so i'm gonna cast the real heroes and i was like okay fine whatever 
But yeah, it's this one I feel like is much more what what you know the kind of good movies that can come from Clint Eastwood. And I wouldn't say it's his best movie, but if this was his final movie, it would be a great one for him to go out on. That's all I'm saying. I loved your working up. I'm sorry. Don't get too attached. Once upon a Deadpool. Kind of prefer Marvel movies. We are Marvel. Yeah, but you're, you know, Marvel licensed by Fox. It's like if the Beatles were produced by Nickelback. It's music, but it sucks. You were nicer as a kid. Rated PG-13. Limited engagement in theaters December 12th. And lastly, the the other thing that came out this week was a recut of Deadpool 2. Now, it's not a strict, like, PG-13 version of Deadpool 2. They do add bits with Fred Savage that are fun and were probably great to shoot. And then I think they shot, they showed some deleted scenes. I have to go through the DVD menu, the DVD, the Blu-ray, to see if those were on there. But ultimately, it's just Deadpool 2. Only not every, all the good stuff from Deadpool 2. It's like, it's like a TV version of Deadpool 2. This is a TV-friendly version of Deadpool 2 with some more S-bombs thrown in. Because uh, apparently that one's not as bad as F, you know. At, poop is not as bad as fornication, according to the according to the MPAA. At any rate, <laughs> um, yeah, this is just Deadpool two. This is I, I liken this to a bonus feature on a Blu-ray being shown in theaters. Like, oh hey, here's this version of the movie you haven't seen before, but instead of being on the 2099 Blu-ray release, you see it on you see it on the big screen. Like, this is cute for, like, a Blu-ray or, like, a special TV version. Like, if they did want to show this on TV, that would have been fine. I don't know why you would pay to see this in theaters. And I don't think people did because they would much rather watch Deadpool 2 as they rem- that, that, the one they liked rather than see a lesser version of it, even though it does have Fred Savage in it. Like, compared to, compared to Deadpool 2... This is this one can't compete, and like people were even saying, Deadpool two is isn't as good as the first one, and then here you've got a version that's basically made for TV, and you're showing it in theaters. Like this is double dipping at a yeah of a kind that I haven't seen at all in theaters. Like when the Star Wars re releases came out, they were at least you know they were at least arguably improved from their original state by the the advent of C, of CG. Meanwhile, Deadpool two has scenes cut out from it, lines cut, uh, editing to avoid too much gruesome blood and viscera, and a complete redubbing of lines in some cases, because you can see see clearly that the mouth movements on Deadpool don't match the dialogue coming out of his mouth. It looks almost like a freaking, like a Godzilla dub from the 70s. And, uh, yeah, just ultimately a a really sad attempt to re- to just double dip on Deadpool 2 with what should have been a, either a TV special or a, like, what, what if the joke was, oh, we could show Deadpool 2, but it has to be in this version on TV. Censors won't let us. And you make that the joke. Or the joke was, hey, you bought the special Blu-ray. Di- or, like, the, what if the joke was, hey, Fred, we wanted you for the Blu-ray. We, we wanted to include you in the movie, but we can only get you on the Blu-ray special edition. <laughs> you know, what if that was the joke? Why is it in theaters? You know, this doesn't deserve to be in theaters as much. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Like, I didn't hate it. 
but why did I? Why do I need to see this? You know, why do I need to pay ten dollars to see this in theaters when I could just watch this on Blu-ray or on television? You know, and that's kind of what leads into my discussion this week. So yeah, Dead, Once Upon a Deadpool. It was, it was a cool, it was a cute attempt, but can we not? Like d- nobody else try this, okay? Can we? Can we just not? So uh, after the break, we'll come back and we'll talk about. Um, re-releases in the age of home video essentially you you out there do you know what horror is you like horror films you like gore you want to hear four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films. Join us at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, a good ghoul's guide to horror. Oh! On the gummy cat Don't read the line. Do you know that in the world of the insane, you will find a kind of truth more terrifying episode was I wasn't able to get the um, research done in time for the discussion. I wanted to be more researched on it instead of just talking separate. This isn't one of those topics that you can talk extemporaneously on because it's opinion. This is dealing with actual history of re-releases and, you know, second runs essentially. And for that, I dug into the history of that. And the big thing I found was there was a, there's been a long line of second run theaters for 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 almost a century now. Like, that's the thing. People think of theaters as, like, first the first run, and then it'll come to home video or to television. Before the advent of television, and way before the advent of home video, they there would be second-run theaters. Movies that can't, couldn't afford that initial run, but once it was done in theaters, they would come, they would take the prints and, and re-air them in second runs. And that was the tech, that's the technical term for it. And then, of course, they do it at a discount because you've already paid to see it. You arguably already paid to see it once. So this is your chance to see it again without the need for a projector. Like if you couldn't afford a projector and the film stock, you could come to you could come to a discount theater to do a sec to see it on a, its second run. I know. Um, I have one of those theaters right uh, in uh, south of me in Canton that uh, that's. Affiliated through Cinemark, but does strictly second run movies. Like they they are just they'll show movies just as they're coming on to DVD now, and it's a chance for and they only charge like a dollar to see it. So it's a chance for families to see something on the big screen just before they see it on Blu-ray at a much discounted price, which is a great thing for families who couldn't afford to see it in the main. In like this is this is this movie is within the same district and same like city limits as a massive multiplex from Cinemark as well. So Cinemark has two theaters within like a mile of each other. One does discounted dollar releases just before they come out to Blu-ray. And the other is the big megaplex that shows all the new releases. So yeah, talk about double dipping at any rate. uh, That's been, that was the model for 
decades up until the advent of television. And as television became more readily available in homes, they would, you know, television studios would pay for a license to air old movies. And that's how, um, like, that's how It's a Wonderful Life became affiliated with Christmas. It was a financial flop when it came out. But by the time television came around, they needed something cheap to wear on television. So they would air It's a Wonderful Life and they do it around Christmas. And so people became affiliated with, like, It's a Wonderful Life as a classic because they'd seen it so many times now. And it didn't have the stink of its initial failure on it because future generations wouldn't have remembered that part. It's fun. It's a fun fact. <laughs> uh, uh, if you want to look into that. Um, but yeah, with the advent of television, there would still be second run theaters. You know, they would still be discount. They would be discounted and they never really went away. Like I mentioned, there's one within, within driving distance of me right now. <laughs> and so with television, you got the chance for stations to be like, Oh, we, but at the same time, it wasn't, it, they would have to have paid for the license. So until the advent of cable, and channels dedicated to re-airing television, to re-airing movies on television, that would, the studios would much rather pay for the license to air their own content. So you had more television movies and TV shows, and then the cheapest of the cheap movies that they could air. Like, oh, special thing, we get to air this movie, you know, on television. Uh, for one night only on Saturday or something like that. Stay tuned at 9 p.m. Yeah, it was like, an, it would have been like an event thing. It wouldn't have been until cable came around, that television would be associated with seeing movies after the fact. And by that point, movies were already starting to come out onto home video. Uh, you know, you've had the Betamax and the VHS uh, uh, face-off in the 70s that led, to eight, that led to the 80s with the advent of VHS gaining popularity over Betamax and becoming the dominant form of home video on the market. And but by that point, people would start to... Studios would realize, oh, well, now with this new market, we can release the things from the theaters onto home video. And so people could see that old movie that we don't make any money off of again and see it for the first. And then, of course, with renting, they could see it again and again and again. And the studios would continually see a profit from that. You know, minuscule, not as much as a theater run. But uh, by that point, yeah, very – the only people – the only studio I remember specifically doing – scheduled re-releases of their movies outside of the second run theaters was Disney. Disney was the only one that would re-release their movies to theaters. And that was specifically their animated movies to kind of keep it, keep the nostalgia going. It's like, Oh, every 10 years we'll release Pinocchio or Snow White or Bambi. And they did this with even like song of the South up until the eighties. And by that point, song of the South was starting to lose favor with audiences and so they stopped it with that, but continued it with their other stuff. And now, then of course, uh, Eisner came up with, um, no, I, Eisner? I think Eisner. Will Eisner? No, Will Eisner's the comic artist, I thought. Anyway, um, yeah, the head of, the, uh, Eisner, the head of Disney, decided, oh, we'll create this way, well, we don't want to sell out the brand too much to home video, despite the fact that he totally did. Um, so why don't we create this concept of the, Disney Vault. For a limited release, we'll send all of our classics on home video, you know, to, uh, to home video audiences. And as soon as that run is out, then they're back in the vault. So it creates an artificial scarcity of it. And by that point, they were still re-releasing. Like, why? And then, of course, that's the other thing. As movies, as movies technology and restoration comes into play, you see things like the Star Wars re-releases or uh, Close Encounters of the 
third kind will get like a 3D re- Lion King got a 3D release as technology advances and the ability to restore old film becomes more and more prevalent that's when you see um more theater, more movies getting re-released in the theaters on their new runs and then nowadays you have the advance of Fandango not Fandango that's the ticket service uh Fathom Fathom events will has tied into uh, movie studios to be like, hey, you've got an anniversary coming up. Why don't we re-release that movie through us, and then you don't pay the money for the distribution price for the distribution process, but we, but you still get a chunk of the profits while we show the movies in theaters to people who want to see that movie on its anniversary. And so you see, and of course, uh, Fathom also teamed with uh, Turner Classic Movies. Uh, I believe that's the movie. Um, the channel, uh, but they where they every month they re-air an old movie. Um, let me pull up the list because there's been a whole like the, like I I remember my Cinemark my local Cinemark will ha- used to have the poster of all the Turner Classic movies that they would do. Yeah, Turner Classic movies and Fathom Events present uh, big screen classics. Okay, so for 2019, they've already got the list for 2019 set up because it's already over. Uh, you've got The Wizard of Oz in January, My Fair Lady, To Kill a Mockingbird, Ben Hur. Um, once again, Wizard of Oz, 80th anniversary. Um, My Fair Lady and To Kill a Mockingbird, no anniversaries, but just that's the movie. Um, ben Hur, uh, 60th anniversary. I wanted to get that right. Uh, 50th anniversary for True Grit. Uh, 30th anniversary for Steel Magnolias, 30th anniversary for Field of Dreams, uh, Glory, 50th anniversary for Hello Dolly, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, 25th anniversary of Shawshank, and a 40th anniversary of Alien, 30th anniversary of When Harry Met Sally. So it's not like all old releases, but like once again, you've got the light. You got things ranging from 1939 all the way up to the 90s coming out. Shawshank Redemption. And when Harry met Sally and um, Steel Magnolias all within like the 90, 89, 90s. And through Fathom Events and Turner Classic Movies, you get the, people get the chance to see these old movies that they've only ever seen on VHS or DVD and see them on the big screen. As though the draw would be, hey, you get to see this on the big screen. Which leads to the question, should people see these things on the big screen when they could just as easily see it at home? That's the thing I saw when I went to when I saw Schindler's List, which was done outside of Fathom Events, and the and nobody was in my theater when I went to see that. Uh, granted, I wasn't at like peak. Um, pri- you know, I was I was at, I think I saw it in the early afternoon or something, and it wasn't like peak movie going time, but it's still I don't even think it made the top ten that week it came out. So. Was it, was it worth it re-releasing that movie in theaters if nobody was going to see it because they could just as easily see it at home? And I would say that it there is something to be said for second theatrical runs outside of the disc outside of the sort of discount dollar theaters with these sorts of things like Fathom Events and these anniversary showings. It's nice to showcase a movie on its anniversary, but I feel like people. Unless the theater is really good, there's no reason for the for people to come out to the theaters to see it if it, they get a better experience at home. Which leads to the idea that 
you need to improve the theater going experience. And like if it's um one of those really fancy AMC theaters that has the recliners and the you know, assigned seats and like fancy fancy treats and whatnot, that would be something to see a new like that would be like that you know they they're improving the theater going experience by making it more like you're seeing it at home, but with a much more bit massive screen. So, and at the same time, not all theaters can afford to do that. Like, if the neighborhood can't afford to pay for the, can't afford to pay for the upkeep of that style of theater, then there's no way that they're going to get that kind of theater-going experience, which once again lets people realize, oh, well, unless it's new and I haven't seen it before and I can only see it in theaters, why would I just not stay home and watch it on Netflix or Amazon? That's the other thing, too. Since DVD, since VHS led to DVD led to Blu-ray. Now we've got streaming, and as people have access to high-speed internet and can watch these things at home at the click of a button, why would you go to out? Why would you leave your home to go see it in theaters? Personally, I don't. I would see all of these things in theaters if I could, because for me, I I and that's the thing. If not for my local Cinemark, which has best popcorn for me locally, best seating arrangements for me locally. Outside of the, um, like, if I drive out to the next town over, uh, I can get in, like, a recliner seat, which is really nice. But, yeah, unless it's to see something, like, I already have on DVD, the only reason I'd go to see it in theaters is if I really liked it and I wanted that big screen experience. Because that's the thing. As a movie fan... I love the big screen. I love that 90-foot screen and surround sound just being enveloped within the movie. It's a great experience, but if your theater isn't very good, why would you go see things in the theaters? It's why I that's why I harp on Regal Cinema so much, because they should be doing better. AMC and Cinemark are investing in their theaters. I don't see Regal doing the same thing. Unless it's in, like, really high-end areas. Like, I know my brother's Regal is a bit nicer, but even the nicest, but, like, the popcorn's not very good. The food isn't very good. I think the only thing they have going for them is that they partner with Nathan's Hot Dogs. Whereas, you know, the main staple, popcorn, Cinemark has partnered with Oscar, with um, Orville Redenbacher, of all people, you know? So they've they've got the best popcorn, in my opinion, because they've got people who are who make outstanding popcorn. Um, at any rate, I, I have to say that ultimately it comes down to the fact that do you, these, like the, with these re-releases, unless it's a massive change in technology and a restoration to make it look pristine and brand new, why would you th- see it in theaters? Why? And then unless, and that's the other thing is that w- unless you have a high end theater that makes you want to go to the movies, if you're in a movie theater that was built in the 80s that still is managing to hold together by the skin of its teeth, why would you go see anything that you couldn't see at home? But see, well, Why would you go see anything else besides what you couldn't see at home? And then, of course, um, thankfully, there are some local theaters, uh, like I mentioned, uh, like I've been mentioning, the Highland Square uh, here in Akron has a theater that's really, de- with a, that's like a nice, cool one-screen theater. Uh, the Nightlight is our local art house theater. And then I think we have another one uh, 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 in a different part of town that has a one screen or two screens set up. And those are nice for, like, new releases. But once again, they don't do second runs. And they, spe- they can only afford to do single-run movies. 
And if the, like, if the Highland could afford to do second runs in the, like every weekend, like every Saturday, instead of doing, or like not, maybe not Saturday because that's their peak um, traffic time. But like every Wednesday, they did a re-release of one of their favorite movies, but then that would mean they have to get the rights to do it, get the get the get property of either the projector film reel or the digital digital screening of it. It has to be um, optimized for projection because it doesn't. They don't want to showcase a lesser um, film quality on a big screen. It would look like crap. But then, and then once again, it has to be all approved by the studio in order for you to do that. So that's just too much hassle for an independently owned theater, sadly. Outside of the normal standards for new releases. So, so I, we're not seeing it going away. It's never going to go away as technology advances and as the people have a drive. And as long as theater-going experiences improve, people will want to see these movies in theaters again and again. Especially if it's like something like The Wizard of Oz or something like um, Ben-Hur. Something, that's something that makes you want to see it. Lawrence of Arabia, Alien. Those are movies to, to see on the big screen again. Um, I'm not sure about when Harry met Sally. That may be for more like uh, older Gen X kids who are like, oh my god, I love that movie growing up. Let's go see it, honey. Uh, but ultimately, what it comes down to is, should you see things in theaters that you could see at home? And I would say, do you like going to the theater? Is your theater-going experience a positive one or a negative one? Because if you've got a really bad theater near you, you shouldn't have to support them unless you have to, and unless you, you know, unless you really want to see a movie, you shouldn't have to go to that theater and support them if they don't give you a good service. And what it ultimately comes down to is, theater chains need to continually improve, and in the other, or else they're going to go out of business. Which is why AMC had to revamp from a, from a nationwide chain into a smaller, semi-nationwide uh, luxury chain. And meanwhile, you've got independent chains popping up that'll run locally. Like, at, like I know I would love for an um, Alamo-style really theater near me, but Cinemark is adapting a lot of the tactics of the Alamo Draft House um, in their more high-end neighborhoods. And as and as they, as more major chains adapt the tactics of things like the Alamo Draft House, we will start to see improvements overall. And as long as people continue to improve the theater going experience, they'll make seeing these movies that are re-released on big screen more worth seeing again. However, if it's double dipping in the form of once upon a Deadpool, which led to this whole discussion, there's no reason to see it on, in, on theaters at, at all. But if you want to see like an old favorite from like if Bambi was re-released on the big screen for an anniversary, like for 2022's uh, 60th anniversary, no, 80th anniversary. Oh, God, 80th anniversary. Um, but if they wanted to do Bambi on the big screen for its 80th anniversary, um, yeah, yeah, 80th anniversary, uh, I would absolutely go see it because that's my favorite movie and I would want to see it on the big screen. So as long as, as, long as you continue to, um, you know, harness that love of seeing things on the big screen in kids... They'll that and hold on to that as they grow into adulthood, and they don't lose that love of seeing things on the big screen. They'll these sorts of things will continue to be profitable. But otherwise, if you don't make the theater going experience good, and you don't 
release movies that are worth seeing on the big screen, there's no reason for people to keep doing it. They can just see it again at home. Uh, at any rate, I think that's about that's enough on this topic. Let's uh, move right along to uh, our main staples, which are the box office reports and the trailer talk. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. All right, looking at the box office, uh, Once Upon a Deadpool is actually doing better than Schindler's List did. It was just outside of the top ten, but still. Not a lot of people wanted to see that. Uh, meanwhile, as we look into the people dropping out of the top seven, we lose um, Innocent Family is out. Uh, Fantastic, Beast, uh, Fantastic Beasts uh, 2 has finally dropped out of the top seven. And then Green Book is out of the top seven. Uh, meanwhile, we, uh, staying in the top seven right now is Bohemian Rhapsody with four, $4.1 million dollars, bringing its domestic total up to $180 million, and it's Worldwide gross up to $635.9 million. Well on its way to almost earning a billion dollars worldwide. So, once again, even though the movie's not very good, people love their love them some Queen. Uh, next up, Creed 2 earned a $5.3 million in the box office, bringing its domestic gross up to $104 million, And its worldwide gross up to $131.8 million. Well over its, well over its uh, budget including its uh, marketing. So even though it's still behind the first Creed movie, uh, it's still uh, doing very well uh, for itself, and it's definitely making a profit right now. So we'll see how it does at the very end of its, at, at the very end of its run if, and if they decide to do a Creed 3 in some capacity. Next up, the first premiere on the top seven, Mortal Engines, came in with $7.5 million. That's the other thing. This weekend is very light. It's doing a bit better than the last couple of weekends, but this one there did not really. No, not a lot of people were seeing movies this weekend, at least domestically. Uh, probably saving up for the Christmas uh, releases. So, Mortal Engines premiered in the domestically with seven and a half million dollars, and only made forty-two million dollars opening weekend worldwide, which is less than half of its budget. So. The, the, I, I think people were predicting this to be a flop. We'll see if uh, foreign markets are able to carry it at, a, at all. Uh, but for right now, this is projected to be a massive flop for uh, for the, everyone behind it. Um, meanwhile, dropping down from number one to number four is Ralph Breaks the Internet, which brought in $9.5 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $154 million and its worldwide gross up to $272.3 million. Still behind its competitors, and I think it's just the fact that um, even though it was actually number two in Thanksgiving uh, five-day opening weekend, uh, second behind only Frozen, it I think people are just have no interest in seeing it again, which is what keeps a movie alive in theaters. And I hope this we kind of leave Ralph here unless it's in like cameo appearances and like actual video games. I feel like that's where he'd be best suited at this point. Uh, dropping down from number two to number three is The Grinch, which brought in $11.5 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $239 million and its worldwide gross up to $372.6 million. Even if it's not in a very good capacity, people still love The Grinch. So good, so good for it, I guess. Uh, premiering at number two is The Mule, which brought in $17.2 million domestically, 
and no foreign markets to date, but it's well trailing well behind its budget of fifty million dollars. We people were not, even though Clint Eastwood used to be a big draw. I feel like his audience is not coming out to see him uh, as much. We'll see if maybe they'll see it over the holidays, but people are, don't seem to be taking this one. I think the people are kind of. Um, Losing, well, no, I'd have to take a look at his, tra- his track number for his other movies uh, recently. But I don't see, um, let's see, Lifetime, $36 million for for 15, 17th Paris, which, yeah, 2018. Can't believe that came out this year. I, I have no recollection of it. Um, Sully, made, Sully and American Sniper were his last big money makers, but Jersey Boys barely broke $50 million. J. Edgar did, was at 37 hereafter, 32 and once again, Gran Torino at 148. So audiences really aren't taking much to, are, are, unless it's like a real spectacle film that draws audiences in. I, people aren't seeing Clint Eastwood movies as much anymore. Uh, meanwhile, our number one for the premiere this week is Spider-Man: Into the Spider-Verse, which opened at 35.4 million dollars and opened worldwide at 56.4. Shy of its production budget, but I'm guessing. Spider-Man will it, it, it's Spider-Man so it can it can make up that money in to, in due time. I'm guessing once the holidays kick around and the kids have more free time to see it, they'll they'll demand their parents, "I want to see Spider-Man. I want to see Spider-Man." So it's not an immediate draw like say the MCU Spider-Man or anything, but I I, I fully see this movie um spreading word of mouth to get uh oh Although it did um, premiere with the largest opening for a December animated release. So, I mean, that's still $35 million. But, hey, that's something. That means more people went to see this in December than any other animated movie. So, good for it, I guess. Uh, We'll see as the holidays come around if more people go see the Spider-Mans. But as for right now, it's still number one, technically. Uh, Next week is going to be the real real big numbers. Uh, That's where Aquaman and Bumblebee... And Marwin are coming into the picture, but we'll talk about that during the trailer talk segment. So this week one is seeing a, a, an uptick from the last one, but we'll see about uh, next weekend uh, how they fit, how the new releases fare with the big pushers coming in for the holidays. Uh, and speaking of which, coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. Now we look behind to the week that was. Let's look ahead to the week that will be. First up, we've got Mary Poppins Returns coming this Wednesday. So let's take a look at the final trailer for that. Is this the final trailer or is this the... Yeah, this is the final trailer. I can't remember why we kept most of this stuff to begin with. Don't you remember that kite? We used to love flying that with mother and father. Those days are long behind me. Yeah. It'll be interesting. I'll have to rewatch the original Mary Poppins to uh, see how this compares. Also, good get with for Lynn Manuel. I'm really interested to hear his uh, music for this. to have aged at all. Really? One never discusses a woman's age, Michael. Would have hoped I taught you better. 
I forgot that what that that mirror bit was from the original movie. What brings you here after all this time? Same thing that brought me the first time. I've come to look after the bank's children. Us? Oh yes, you too. Uh. We're about to lose our home. Everything's fallen to pieces since your mother. I'll just say that uh, Emily Blunt does a really good job bringing Mary Poppins to life. It's a bit, it's not quite the Julie Andrews version, but it, it, it works. God, it feels so good to see 2D animation on the big screen again. Uh, for director Rob Marshall. That's the other bit. We've got an experienced musical director behind this as well. You forgot what it's like to be a child. Emily Blunt, Lynn Manuel Miranda, Ben Wishaw, Emily Mortimer, Julie Walters, Colin Firth, with Meryl Streep and Dick Van Dyke. Uh, yeah, I'll have to rewatch. I know, I remember my sister, I'll have to talk to my sister, see if she wants in on this, because I know that was one of her favorite movies growing up, too. Um, yeah, this, I have to go back and revisit Mary Poppins. It's been forever since I watched it. Um, I remember it's really, like, once again, it's excellent, uh, uh, from Disney. Like, even though I know that it's not true to the source material, but it's, it's, was peak Disney. Like, that's the one that, that... There's a reason that people are still holding on to it and that they wanted to do a sequel to after all these years. Uh, and it looks like it's not going to be too bad. Like, sequels after this long tend not to be so good. This one doesn't look... Like, it looks like they have the, their hearts in the right place and it's not a complete commercial cash grab. It's more like, well, we want to tell more Mary Poppins stories. So why don't we get somebody who looks and can do the and can play Mary Poppins like Julie Andrews did and tell something like that. Um, we'll see how it plays out in full and how it compares to the original, but I'm excited. I'm really excited for this one. I hope it's good. Um, of course, when we get to the weekend proper, we've got the big releases. First up, Aquaman, the next entry in the DCEU for however long that lasts. Legend has it that one day, a new king will come. Who will use the power of the trident to put Atlantis back together again? It's the exact spot that Volko gave me my first swimming lesson. I already know how to swim. Hi, Willem Dafoe. I feel like they underplayed him in this movie. Like, who wouldn't want to see Willem Dafoe? Go deeper. One cover your Atlantean instincts. He spent his entire life training. Made me what I am. I am the protector of the deep. Which is why he's out in the desert. <laughs> in this trident resides the power of Atlantis. In the wrong hands, it would bring destruction. But in the hands of the true heir, it would unite above and below. 
The time has come for Atlantis to rise again. We must stop him. And how do you propose we do that? By retrieving this. Are you one of those? Not like this one. Uh, director is James Wan from The Fast and Furious and uh, Saw. On December 21st. Your mother always knew you were special. She believed you'd be the one to unite our two worlds. Atlantis was always had a king. Now I need something more. Could be greater than a king. A hero. Ooh. Oh. This one. Yeah, this. This and I'm not sure about that. That end reveal of the final uh, actual comics. Uh, inspired Aquaman suit. It don't look good. It really don't look good. It looks like they took the regular costume and colored it again in Photoshop. Ooh. <laughs> um, at any rate, um, I have to say that, yeah, Aquaman could go either way. It Like, I remember, I've heard definitely people saying that, oof, it's a CG-driven, hot, you know, just like complete visual effects, like throw up. Uh, that that and the story doesn't isn't able to be any good aside from that. So we'll see uh, in the final run. I know my nephew and I will do this. This might end up being bad movie squad for us, for all we know. <laughs> we'll have to see when it comes out. Uh, next up, the next big release for this weekend: Bumblebee. Bumblebee. <laughs> Let's take a look at the, at the trailer. I'm Charlie Watson. That opening note always reminds me of Sister Christian or something. I think. Or is it Sister Christian or is it uh Fiora's kid? No, it's um here I go again on my own. I feel like I'm about to hear some Night Ranger. Oh hey, this will be the action this will be the second Haley Steinfeld movie in two weeks. This Christmas. So you have no idea where he came from? No idea. Well. Here's the deal. People can be terrible about things they don't understand. From now on, the only person you can show yourself around is me. Oh, I'm, I'm good. Now I'm good, thanks. That's not a bad effect. Wait. Since when could Transformers transform twice? If this criminal isn't found, that war may find its way Is there anyone that can help you? Do you have a family? Oh, who would it be? Every hero has a beginning. They're calling an army. I've seen firsthand these things really are. I'm surprised that wasn't actually Starscream. Bumblebee. There is only one way to end. Ah, sound wave. You must protect Earth and its people. Oh, hey, Optimus Prime acting act like actual Optimus Prime for a change. 
how we stop them. You've got me. And I'm not going anywhere. That's a nice shot. Um, this is from uh, one of the from the head of Leica, I believe, who's directing this. And I I know uh, Lindsay Ellis actually got to see this early. Uh, I think L.A. got an earlier screening, so people have been talking about it more. I guess Austin did too, because uh, uh, Double Toasted has their review up already. But yeah, people are. I think people are finally saying, "Oh, a Transformers movie that's good." You know, it's not it's not amazing, but it's like, oh, hey, something I can actually watch and not throw up in my mouth at. So we'll see how it turns out. If anything, it would be nice to see this not go tie into the Bayverse, but more like, oh, oh, no, we're going to tie into the actual, like, our own thing. We're starting over because it look cause already looks better. We'll see how it looks um, when, uh, and when it comes to uh, uh, future movies, but... Uh, I'm in, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued to see how it finally turns out. So we'll take a look at that uh, next week. And then finally, the big, the last big release uh, is Welcome to Marwen from Robert Zemeckis and um, Steve uh, Steve Carell. I was a hell of a good artist, a World War II illustrator, and now I can barely write my name. Based on an inspirational true story. I heard what happened to you. I'm really interested to hear the true story about this. To miracle, he survived. You taking your meds? I got beaten within an inch of my life for no reason. One foot in front of the other. You got it, Mark. Embrace the pain. But I've created a world where I can heal. What is all of this? Welcome to Marwin. It's my art installation. You're an artist? That's a complicated story. Well, tell me. You really want to know? Yes. Yeah, I feel like um, Leslie Mann's character was added for the movie to be a love interest. Head. Everything from before the attacks come. So my dolls have to tell a story. The animation is nice to touch, but I wonder if they'll detract from the true story aspect of it. From the bad guys. Let's go. More ammo! We need more ammo! I thought I heard you yelling for more gumbo. Not gumbo! No gumbo! Are all of the dolls in Marwin people you know? Yeah, there's Anna. Da. Da. Julie. Hell yeah. Carlala. You can't keep on running away from your problems. Roberta. Were you gonna go to the sentencing? You need to face those jerks who beat you up. I'm not really sure how to do this. Our pain is our rocket fuel. This Christmas, the life I once had was taken away from me, but I'm still here. To dream. I have hope. And I have my town. Is to heal. And I have my friends. I got your back. And I'll be okay. Academy Award nominee Steve Carell. Anything is possible in Marlin. Bottoms up, girls. People need to see how special Marwin really is. To life, to love, to the women of Marwin. Welcome to Marwin. Yeah, I think that guy's 
uh, installation is still available in like Pennsylvania or something, I have to uh, look into that. That guy's story sounds amazing, and I feel like the movie is going to go into an entirely different direction. But I feel like his own life story is is worth seeing too. So maybe there's like a documentary about him at all. If you know about one, let me know. Um, but yeah, that's what we got looking forward to this weekend. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and uh, next weekend is also going to be our Holiday Spectacular, where uh, Halloween, I talked about uh, Nightmare Before Christmas as a Halloween movie. I'm going to be talking about some of my favorite Christmas movies, some new stuff, and they're going to talk about Nightmare Before, Nightmare Before Christmas as a Christmas movie. So stay tuned for that as well. Uh, that about does it for this week, so that means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by favoring, favoriting the page through your browser and whitelisting us on your ad blocker. And then check out all of our other fine programming there as well. You know, uh, check out my other podcast, Living in the Stacks. Um, no word yet on my other on if uh, Tragic Missile or um, Magic Day will come back yet. I'm working on something for Tragic Missile. I've been in talks with... Um, with uh, one of with one of my co-hosts there, uh, in order to try and see if we can't revive it at all, uh, but that'll be sometime next year, uh, hopefully. Uh, or you can check out stuff from Donna over on Snarkast, her um, uh, Buffy, her Buffy cast, her. Um, I should see if she has a bumper for uh, the family business at all for uh, Supernatural, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, and then of course uh, Vanessa's still doing the odd. Vegas, uh, uh, Las Vegas Oddities uh, podcast, I believe. So, and if you yourself are a podcaster and would like to join our network, uh, you can let us know, uh, send all your inquiries and a sample of your work to uh, gummiketnetworks at gmail.com and we'll get back to you. Uh, if you're not listening to us through the through your desktop or through your uh, through the browser, you can, you're probably finding us through uh, your var the various podcasting uh, outlets out there. So, whether you're through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this, uh, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review and let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. Uh, you can also do that by sharing us on your various social media. The social media home for Popcorn Junkie is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. That's where all the major announcements are going to be. You can join me on Twitter at cornjunkiepod. That's where I do uh, most of my activities. I do uh, the Twitter trailer talk where I talk about the new releases before – uh, the, the trailers before a new release. I also do munch-alongs for stuff, whether it's in an empty theater uh, for a bad movie or from at home. And I'm watching something in the lead-up to a new release. So you can join me over there. Over there for that. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast, and you can find me on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. That's where I do all of my reactions uh, with the various people over on Stardust. You can find uh, double, the guys from Double Toasted, the Schmoes No Guys, some uh, some other uh, various internet celebrities like Mars Girl are on there. Uh, she just posted about Aquaman, and then you can also find the King of Stardust himself. I have so appointed him. Uh, <laughs> the internet's other John Bailey, uh, epic voice guy, is over on Stardust. And if you want to see the best reactions to movies on Stardust, you follow him because he is the best de facto. I have yet to see a uh, Stardust uh, user as good as him. Uh, but you can also find your various other, see if your friends are on there, see if other, you know, your various other uh, colleagues are on there. If you like talking about movies and you want to see what people are talking about, you can join us over on Stardust. Follow me at Popcorn Junkie. Follow anybody that you find take interest in and let people know what you think of movies as well. So join us over on Stardust. We're having a lot of fun. You should too. 
And then if there's anything else you want to say to the podcast, any kind of feedback you want to give, corrections on something I've said, any kind of addition, additional material, like if you remember stuff about re-releases or if you've had experience in a movie theater that's been doing re-releases, and if you've been... Um, or if you've had your own opinions about the movies that I talked about. What did you think of Into the Spider-Verse? What did you think of Mortal Engines? What did you think of The Mule? Do you agree with me that The Mule is one of uh, the best from Clint Eastwood? Or did you have more, or did you have more negative opinions of it? Uh, let me know. And if you want to have your message read out on the podcast, let me know in the, either the subject or the message that you give your explicit permission to have this on the ep- uh, have this read on the episode. Otherwise, I will simply paraphrase and mention that somebody set it out uh, sent it out just because i don't want to do anything without your explicit permission and i would love an audience feedback segment at some point so you know hopefully you hopefully we can get that started and if you're so if you're listening you have your own thoughts your own opinions your own reactions corrections whatever it is send all of that to popcorn junkie podcast at gmail.com that does it for this week's episode until next time i'm john bailey and hopefully i can get over my crippling depression enough to get this out on time next week no promises the theme song for popcorn junkie is funky popcorn by the m look up funky popcorn by the letter m on soundcloud for more of their music artwork provided by nafio n-a-f-y-o look up nafio.deviantarts.com for more of his artwork 